0: You hear a knock on the door and open it to find two friendly representatives from The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, otherwise known as the Mormon Church. So what will you say? Will you send them away without a Christian witness, or will you engage them in a meaningful and Christ-honoring conversation? If you desire the latter, may we suggest the book, Answering Mormon's Questions, by Mormonism Research Ministries' Bill McKeever and Eric Johnson. Answering Mormon's Questions is available wherever you find quality Christian books.
1: Why did Joseph Smith find himself in court on March 20th, 1826? Welcome to this edition of Viewpoint on Mormonism. I'm your host, Bill McKeever, founder and director of Mormonism Research Ministry, and with me today is Eric Johnson, my colleague at MRM. Well, today we wrap up the discussion of our trip that Eric, myself, and a friend of ours, Trevor Wolfe, took to a number of historical sites in Illinois, Ohio, and New York, as well as Pennsylvania. In yesterday's show, we were talking about our visit to Bainbridge, New York, and I was quoting from this document by a man by the name of William D. Purple. I didn't go into a lot of detail as to who William D. Purple was, other than he had a lot of information about this man, Josiah Stoll, that hired Joseph Smith as a young man to look for a silver mine in the area of Bainbridge. What comes about from this is that in February of 1826, William Purple mentions that the sons of Mr. Stoll, he says, who lived with their father, were greatly incensed against Joseph Smith as they plainly saw their father squandering his property in the fruitless search for hidden treasures, and saw that the youthful seer had unlimited control over the illusions of their sire. What does that tell us? Well, the sons of Josiah Stoll think that Joseph Smith is ripping their father off, and so they're going to do something about this. So William Purple explains what happened next. They
2: caused the arrest of Smith as a vagrant without visible means of livelihood. The trial came on in the above-mentioned month before Albert Neely, the father of Bishop Neely of the state of Maine. I was an intimate friend of the justice and was invited to take notes of the trial, which I did. There was a large collection of persons in attendance, and the proceedings attracted much attention.
1: So Joseph Smith is going to be arrested for being a vagrant, as William Purple describes it. Now, he is not found guilty. A lot of people assume that he was. Actually, Judge Neely allowed Joseph Smith to to leave. One of the reasons why that I have found is because at this time Joseph Smith was under the age of 21, which was the legal age to be an adult. But certainly he did go through this trial, hearing, whatever you want to call it, and it does seem from the evidence that Joseph Smith, in fact, was a glass looker. Now, in that particular time, that would be the same as being a fraud. They were saying that Joseph Smith claimed that he could find buried treasure, But, of course, even Joseph Smith admits that even though he was accused of being a money digger, he didn't make a lot of money at it. But now we are in Harmony, Pennsylvania, and this is where the Isaac Hale Farm is located, the Isaac and Elizabeth Hale Farm. Joseph Smith and Emma would live with Isaac Hale for a time, and as we mentioned in yesterday's show, Isaac was not enamored with Joseph Smith at all. He did not like the business that he was in, that is, being a money digger, and so you can understand why he would be reluctant to have his daughter, Emma, marry Joseph Smith, so much so that he would not give them permission to marry, and that's why Joseph and Emma had to go to Bainbridge in order to be married. When you go to this area of Harmony, New York, there's a visitor center there. So Eric and I and Trevor, we went to this visitor center and we looked around, and then we attached ourselves to a group that was about ready to go on a tour of the reconstructed Isaac and Elizabeth Hale House, which was across the highway. The LDS Church had built this tunnel that goes underneath the highway. So we are traveling with this group of visitors, a number of young men who were, as we understood it, to be ironic priesthood holders. And so we tagged along with this group. Again, we're trying to be on our best behavior here. We don't want to cause a scene. We are there to listen to what the tour guides are having to tell the, the visitors to these sites. We went in to the Isaac Hale house. Then, after we visited the Isaac Hale house, we went several feet away to the reconstructed house where Joseph and Emma lived for a time. And this is where Joseph Smith was translating the gold plates into English. They had a display there. It was a box, and the box was supposed to contain the gold plates. I have pictures of these young men picking up this box, and you could see that they were lifting it with a lot of ease. Which, of course, for me, the gold plates and the weight of the plates is a big deal. I've been discussing that subject for years, and certainly the plates were not as light as whatever this... Box contained for these young people.
2: And we do have a photo of that on our website where we have pictures from our trip. MRM.org/slash Nauvoo-trip. Nauvoo spelled N-A-U-V-O-O-trip. So you can see those pictures from the past three weeks as we have been
1: discussing this trip. Now, the young men are lifting up these plates, and I'm sitting there just biting my tongue because I'm listening to this tour guide. Try to give the impression to these young, impressionable boys that that's about how heavy the plates would have been. Now, of course, the argument that I raise that if the plates were really made of gold and they were the size that Joseph Smith claimed, 6 inches by 8 inches long by 6 inches deep, gold plates that size would weigh closer to 200 pounds. Certainly, these young men were not lifting anything close to 200 pounds. They weren't even lifting anything close to my 80-pound replica plates that I have had for years and have challenged Latter-day Saints to lift.
2: But if you notice, the guide, Bill, when we were there, made mention of, oh, how strong you guys are when they were lifting them up. And they had a big smile. And these are 15-year-old, 16-year-old kids. They had no problem, as you mentioned, to lift these up.
1: We moved from that room into another room, and there was a table sitting there. And on this table, there was a hat, like a kind of a top hat, I guess you could call it. And next to it was something that I'm sure was supposed to resemble the gold plates, but they were wrapped up in some kind of a cloth. I don't know what kind of cloth, but we have a picture of that as well if you'd like to see it. And the explanation that our tour guide gave, and maybe I wasn't totally surprised, but he did mention that Joseph Smith used a seer stone that he would put into this hat. But then he said something I had never heard before. He mentioned that the gold plates had to be near the seer stone and the hat in order for the characters to appear on the seer stone for Joseph Smith to read to the present scribe. I had never heard that before. What is this, a 19th century Bluetooth? I asked him who told him that. I thought he had said that a Mormon historian had visited there recently and told him that story, that the plates needed to be nearby the seer stone in order for the seer stone to work. When I asked him the name of the historian, if I heard him correctly in the first place, that it wasn't the historian that said it, it was a man that was with the historian. So I asked him, do you know the name of that individual? Which, of course, he did not. So I have no way of verifying that this story is really circulating among LDS historians. I have only this tour guide's word to go by. And I have no reason to believe that he's not telling the truth. I'm sure the man was trying to be as honest as he possibly could with how he understood his own history. We see the hat near the plates. But of course, I didn't see a seer stone or any type of rock there, but it had the two chairs sitting side by side, which was a little different than what we saw when we were visiting the cabin at the Peter Whitmer farm, because there the chairs were opposite each other. In this particular case, the chairs were sitting next to each other. You would think that if Joseph Smith was looking at the plates, that his scribe would have seen them as well. But see, that's not how they're telling the story there. The plates were covered up, so whoever was his scribe at the time would not be able to see the plates. Now, as we mentioned earlier, whenever anybody really saw these plates, they saw them only in vision. They never saw tangible plates. And that seems to be a difficult thing for many Latter-day Saints to swallow, because I think they even understand the importance that these witnesses saw tangible plates, not necessarily plates seen in a vision, even though the the documentary History of the Church states that they saw them in vision. You can understand why that would be a problem, Eric, for a lot of Latter-day Saints, because they want these plates to be real. They have to be tangible. But yet, There's a lot of contradictory stories about how these witnesses, the three witnesses, and then later the eight witnesses, saw the plates. But even LDS historians give us the impression that there is controversy in this, and that there's enough evidence to give the impression that nobody saw tangible plates, that they all saw them in a vision.
2: Bill, we have spent the past three and a half weeks on this series, and if you want to listen to the shows, you can go to mrm.org slash trip, as I mentioned earlier. But Bill, I want to ask you, we talked about it in the first show, why we went in the first place. We wanted to hear more of what they were saying at these historical sites and be able to deal with that so that we could be better prepared when we're here in Utah to know how things are being said, I think I found uh, a lot of information and I learned a lot, but what do you think were some of the things that you learned during this trip and what we can take away from it?
1: Well, that's a great question. I think a lot of what we learned is what we weren't told. And that always stuck out to me. Now, as I explained earlier in this series, I I didn't expect a lot of these tour guides to spend a lot of time, if any time at all, on all the negative information, which would have made Joseph Smith look less than larger than life or less than the prophet of God that they, of course, believe him to be. But there's a lot of LDS history that I think needs to be told if we're going to better understand this narrative. That's what makes it difficult. They own these sites. The church gives these tour guides the script that they're supposed to stick to, not necessarily word for word, but they have a pretty good outline of what should be brought up and what should not be brought up, I'm sure. And when you go there knowing this history— It does kind of irritate you to know what's being left out, because if visitors who were not sympathetic to the Mormon cause were to hear the other side of the story, they would probably be less apt to want to join this organization.
2: I'm going to estimate we probably talked to a hundred different tour guides, missionaries all through our two-week trip. I'm going to say that we got them off the script a lot of times, probably in ways that they had never heard before.
1: The bottom line to all this is, as you said, Eric, we wanted to know what they are saying. Let them talk. When we did interrupt, it was only for a clarification of something that we heard. And I I think we behaved ourselves. Could you say, Eric? I think we did. I, I think we did. We were trying to be very respectful to these people who believe very sincerely that these things are true. Naturally, we don't share that conclusion. But I hope this series will help a lot of our listeners to better understand the history behind this movement and also to remember the many people that we spoke to in prayer, that perhaps God will open their eyes to the truth of the New Testament gospel.
0: Thank you for listening. If you would like more information regarding Mormonism Research Ministry, we encourage you to visit our website at www.mormonism.org. MRM.ORG, where you can request our free newsletter, Mormonism Researched. We hope you will join us again as we look at another Viewpoint on Mormonism.